this is a familiar passage, not maybe not quite as familiar as, say, the Christmas passage or the Easter one. So those Christians that we sometimes call the CEO Christians, Christmas and Easter only, you ever heard that one? Christmas and Easter only? Well, they, you know, they, they come to church. They hear the two passages that are about Christmas and Easter. And if you're one of those people, then uh, that's all you ever hear because you only go on Christmas and Easter, so you only hear those two passages. I don't know if there are any Palm Sunday Christians, I mean, but if there were, then they would hear this one. So even non-churchgoers are kind of familiar. They may not know the passage that well, but they know, they know the scene. They're kind of this is one of the iconic scenes to the degree that it's visible there. Iconic scenes from the life of Jesus, even, even non-believers sort of know it, you know? They kind of picture it in their mind. Yeah, yeah, when he went in there and he's on the donkey and the people wave the branches, there's some familiarity with it. Hollywood kind of depicted it pretty well a few times for us, showed us what, it, what they think it looks like. Well, what does it mean, though? You know, we sometimes call this the triumphal entry. Now, it's not called that in the Gospels. So where do we get that name? Well, just hold on. We'll get to that. Entry, though. Entry into where? Where is he going? Well, he's going right into the big city, into the heart of everything. He's going into the holy city of Jerusalem. Remember Luke 9, 51, we talked about a couple of weeks ago. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I mean, he was determined. I'm headed there. Nobody will stop me. I've got a date with destiny there. And he knew what that meant, every bit of it. And the people around him didn't. The disciples, you know, they think, they think it's triumphal because they think he's about to go in there and take his rightful place on the throne. Because he's the Messiah. I mean, he's a king. He's the true king of the Jews. So they believe that according to Ezekiel and other prophets, like Ezekiel 44, the Messiah is supposed to enter, uh, you know, through the, through the eastern gate into the city. So they figure it's time now, and he's about to go in there, and, and it's all going to change. He's, gonna, he's going to ascend in great glory, sit on that throne, make everything right. Those Romans that have been keeping us under the heel of their boot, that's over. It's time for the Messiah to reign, king of the Jews. Let's do this. And so here they go. And that's what, I think that's what they think. That's why they're excited. It is triumphant. But this is a... This is a different kind of triumph. This is a a different sort of victory. But the thing is, it's not a lesser victory. It's a greater victory. It doesn't look right to them, and and it won't look right to them. I mean, you know, they they might be thinking, you know, this isn't really what I pictured. I mean, he's on a donkey. We're out here with the peasants. I mean, I kind of had something bigger in in mind for this. The disciples might be thinking, this is a this is sort of like, you know, the knockoff version of what I was thinking of as our Lord goes into the city. But, you know, it's only getting worse as far as they're concerned. It's only going to get worse. And they're not going to understand it. They're not going to understand that the, the victory he's after, then he will achieve, is not smaller than the political victory that they want. It's bigger. It's universal. It's transcendent. It's timeless. It echoes to right now. Here we sit. Celebrating it now and especially next week. Jesus' public life, pretty brief, right? Three years-ish, right? Three years in the public eye. That ain't much. You know how many uh, celebrities 
are on top for about three years, and that's it. That's nothing. Three years is nothing. And the, and the older you are in here, the more you know that. Three years is, that's a nap. It's nothing, three years. He's on, so he's only been in the public eye for three little years. But it was enough, given the kind of things he said and the kind of things he did, three years was enough to bring him fame. Or, depending on who it is, notoriety. You can be famous and or notorious. Sometimes it's a thin line between the two. But he had done it. You think, you think fame might have been another temptation for Jesus? I mean, Satan tempted him with some things. Satan tempted him with power, all the kingdoms of the world. But here he was. He's the object of fame. Is fame a strong temptation for people? Somebody joked one time, wondered if the donkey might have thought all that was for him. You know, they love me here. Right? Like, you know, donkeys are always supposed to be dumb or something and not get it. So maybe maybe the donkey thinks that I'm the greatest donkey. I'm the, I'm the greatest donkey alive. I'm the greatest donkey you ever lived. Look at they love me. It'd sound like uh, like Eddie Murphy and Shrek, you know. And and they think the donkey might have might have might have thought all that. It would be easy, though. It'd be easy. Jesus is he's a human being. He's not merely a human being, but he's still a human being. These things could go to someone's head. You think about celebrity today. Celebrities today go into a city and crowds are ready for them. They know they're coming. They, they gather up into big groups and, and celebrities today will be greeted by throngs of people who adore them. They don't know them, but they adore them. We love you. They hear their name said by everybody. Come over here. We want to get near you. We want to, we want to t- check your hand. And they're telling them how great they are. They say, oh, we love you. That's a heck of a drug. I mean, that's addictive. And, and a lot of celebrities, that doesn't always have a good effect on people, does it? <laughs> Jesus, he's got celebrity now. But he's also got notoriety. Because like most drugs, there's a cost. There's a cost to celebrity. Because false gods, and that's what that is. It's just another false god. False gods have a way of, they turn on you. And false gods make you pay. Jesus knew, like Jeremy said earlier, Jesus knew that this this crowd of people who loves me today, it's going to look real different by the end of the week. Real different. Can a crowd turn on you? Can a mob turn against you fast? Just ask. Just ask people today with social media. You don't even, you don't even, you're not even limited by geography. A crowd doesn't have to get together, make plans, get transportation, and show up somewhere. Mobs can form in their in their living rooms, all in their own houses. Online mobs, and you may get a thousand likes, and that feels good. But a thousand likes can turn into ten thousand hates overnight, and that does not feel too good. And so Jesus, it says, did not entrust himself to people. Remember, it says he knew what was in man. He knew who he's dealing with. He did not let that intoxicating feeling overtake him. He knew better. Would that a whole lot of, I, I, I'm sorry to say it, but even preachers sometimes today. In our world. I know, it hurts a little, but it's true. Sometimes preachers 
got to watch out. There's a, there's a kind of fame, there's a kind of celebrity that even the spiritual leader, in some circumstances, he can, he can get addicted to that cocaine of love and adoration. Celebrity. Everybody loves me. They think I'm great. Wherever I go, they recognize me. They say, oh, I bought your book. Oh, you signed this. Oh, you're the greatest. That can be hard. Jesus wasn't lured then by this scene, by these people. He had a task. His face was set. He knew what awaited him. And the praise of men, he knew where to, how to rank that, how to, what to do with that. Well, he was willing, though, to accept true worship. Don't, let's not get it confused. Let's, let's not think that, oh, you mean Jesus told them when they, when they said that Hosanna and you're, you're, you're the Lord and we worship you and you're the Messiah. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 no. Not me. That's not me. No, he accepted proper worship. So he didn't turn away worship because worship was due him. He knew who he was. So he accepted the worship, the proper heartfelt worship, those who worship in spirit and in truth. And there's a difference. He accepted that, but not cheap celebrity, not and not flattering tongues, and not people who just said all this stuff to him because they wanted something from him. And he's wise enough to know the difference. And what did the people say then as he came through? The words we've already said. Some Hebrew. You know, there are a few Hebrew words that people all over the world know. You know that? There, there are a handful of Hebrew words that people on every continent know them. Like, for example, the word Amen. Do you ever say Amen in church? Amen. Of course you do. You just did. We say it all the time. You're speaking Hebrew. Amen is just, it just comes from a Hebrew word for belief. It's a faith word. It says in Genesis, Abraham believed God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. The Hebrew verb there is aman. He believed God. You know all those places where Jesus is talking and it says, Truly I say unto you. Or truly, truly. Or I tell you the truth. Or King James, verily, verily. You know what that is in the Greek? Amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, amen. So it's a word of belief and it's sort of a positive word of affirmation. It's confident belief. That's why we say it. Amen. I agree with that. I believe that's true. So you're speaking Hebrew. Or when you say, hallelujah. Hillel is the word for praise. Hallelujah means we praise. Yah is Yahweh. Hallelujah means we praise the Lord. And here's another one. Hoshana. What does it mean? This is a verb for to save. Save us. There, there it is in uh, Psalm 118, translated these ways. Save us now, we pray. Please save us. That's, that's the verb. But it developed into a it developed into a sort of a cry, an outcry for deliverance. Please help us. But but then it also developed into the confidence and, and it also developed into a word of praise because of the sure hope that we're going to get delivered. Right. So it's like it's like the difference between, for example, uh, you know, those scenes, uh, you know, those scenes are in a battle like in war movies and, and they're pinned down and they're under fire and they might be in big trouble and they might all die soon and they need help. So they get on the radio and in all these movie scenes, you know, they're always saying. 
Come on, send, yeah, mayday, yeah. Send help. Send cover now, we're in trouble. And that's, so the verb can mean that, the cry for help. Deliver us, please, we're doomed. We got to have help now, please. But then it also developed into the meaning of, uh, so let's say in that same battle scene, they, they look out over the horizon and they see our birds on the way, right? Here come the jets. And then what do they say? Hallelujah. They, we're delivered. Hooray. We're saved. So it also means that, see? And that's really mostly what it means here. When the people are shouting this word, that's what they mean. They're meaning, hooray, we're saved. Here he comes. That's why we say it. And they said it, of course, obviously, given the whole scene here, they didn't say it based on um, who he appeared to be in the moment. They didn't say it based on how he appeared there, his social status. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't drive up in a new Cadillac. Ooh, he's impressive. So he wasn't on a white stallion. So that so when they say those things, it's not because of how he looks. I mean, he just looks like a peasant. He's just some average guy from the from the backwater village of Galilee. I mean, he's a virtual nobody in that sense. So it wasn't because of status or important position or wealth or even some kind of talent or some charismatic person. They said it because they believed who he was. So the name, the, the term triumphal entry, then, not biblical, strictly speaking. But it comes from the culture around them. So, so in the ancient Greek culture and then in the Roman culture especially, I'll read from a historian for you here. Quote, in the ancient Roman culture, this historian says, a triumphant victor known as vir triumphalis or man of triumph would enter the city in a celebration parade. This is like after he's won. He's gone out. He's kicked a lot of rear end. He's taken a lot of names. He comes back home. He's uh, as a great victor. Says um, he would enter the city in a celebration parade, wearing the laurel wreath, the purple garment, which identified him with the royal and the divine. He would be riding in a chariot pulled by four horses, alluding to Sol, the sun god. This was an official processional. All the people knew how this worked. And according to the list of triumphs on the list they called the Fasti Triumphalis, it concludes with a triumph in 19 BC by the time of Augustus. The triumph had become part of the imperial cult. That's where they worshipped the emperor and thought he was a god. And only the emperor by that time could receive this honor and this recognition as a king and as divine. This according to ancient historians like Dio Cassius and Pliny the Elder or the Younger or both. Well, to call this then a triumphal entry, that doesn't... Doesn't look like the description. Does that sound like what we just read? Great Roman emperor, most powerful man on earth, coming into the great city, the capital of the world, after defeating a great army. That's not what we're looking at here. Here we're just looking at some guy, this Nazarene. Remember Nazareth now. Not, not the coolest place to be from. You ever meet people that are ashamed of where they're from? <laughs> they make up a different place. You know what I mean? It's like... Oh, yeah, I'm from L.A. Right, man, you know. No, I'm really from Wapanook, Oklahoma. Don't be ashamed. Remember, remember when somebody said Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? 
Nazareth? That hole? You kidding me? Nazareth? No, no Messiah. There's no Messiah coming from Nazareth. Come on. No, no. That's where he's from. But so he's got. He didn't have that going for him. He's got no breeding. He doesn't have some kind of great parents that everybody knew. So he's got a low class birth. He wasn't born in a palace. We know where he was born, right? He's from the backwaters. He's got no money. He's got no home. He's riding a donkey. It's almost, it's almost insulting. A lot of people would be ashamed riding the donkey. There's a great song by an old poet who used to write music that I always liked named Rich Mullins. He wrote a song called You Did Not Have a Home. It says, you did not have a home. There were places you visited frequently. You took off your shoes, scratched your feet. You knew that the whole world belongs to the meek, so you did not have a home. You did not take a wife. There were pretty maids all in a row, lined up, touched the hem of your robe, but you had no place to take them, so you did not take a wife. You had no stones to throw. You came without an axe to grind. You did not tow the party line. No wonder sight came to the blind. You had no stones to throw. And you rode a donkey's foal. They spread their coats, they cut down palms for you and your donkey to walk upon. But the world won't find what it thinks it wants on the back of a donkey's foal. Birds have nests, foxes have dens, but the hope of the whole world rests on the shoulders of a homeless man. Contrast that image, by the way, with what we see in Revelation 19. Here's Revelation 19. Real difference here, but contrast with this. Then I saw the heaven opened. And behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. He has a name written no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood by the name which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen following him on their horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's who the disciples expected to see any time now. Any time now, whenever you're ready, Lord. Turn, you know, get out of that Clark Kent outfit and show us who you really are. It wasn't time, though. So he didn't, do, he didn't do that. If they had thought about it now, if they had remembered the words of the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9, they might have heard in their minds words that Matthew 21 quotes. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. How? Humble. Humble. Mounted on a donkey. On the fold, the colt of a foal of a donkey. So it's prophetically foretold but by the way all of this is prophetically foretold we heard that earlier in some of these scriptures that we heard read so they might have known it they might have known it remember we said jesus he's always saying to the people have you not read do you not know where it is written it's all prophetically foretold but the people they're, they're caught up you know sometimes we, we, we true believers, we sometimes think something's wrong because life gets kind of hard. Things don't go the way we want. We think there's something wrong here. This isn't what it, the way it's supposed to be. But have you not read? Did Jesus ever say at any point, 
Behold, my followers will have it so easy. Prepare for a smooth sailing. The road would just be laid out there nice and easy. No problems. I didn't read that anywhere. Believe me, I'm looking for it. Turning the pages. Where is it? I want to claim that. No, so so the peop, these disciples, they're no different from, from the way we are. They want to believe it. So they're ignoring the stuff they read that told them. Just like we ignore things that if we knew it better, we would realize, yeah, this is what to expect. But, you know, the people, they, they, they worship him regardless of all this, regardless of his appearance. He looks like a peasant. He's nobody important according to the world. But they still shout these hosannas. Why do you think they did that? You consider something. Consider that when Jesus comes into any city, as he's been doing throughout history, Jesus, since the time he left earth, he's been, he's been entering into all the cities of the earth, one by one, on the feet of his followers. Because he gave them some instructions before he left. And they've been taking him into all the cities of the world. And when he enters a city, some people in those cities feel threatened when he goes in there. Some people in those cities hate him when he goes in there. But some people... Some people recognize him for who he is, and they worship him. And so it is today. There are, there are people all over the world taking him into cities. We pray for them. We try to support them, support them with money, support them in other ways. Because they're, they're, they're out there entering into cities, and they take the Lord with them as he commanded. And when they go in, there will be a few that, that will worship. He's... This is foreordained. Those whom he has called, they will worship. But a whole bunch of other people will not worship. And there will be hostility. That's what we're part of here. C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. And he's calling people to join a great campaign of sabotage. Sabotage. Upend the systems of the world. The kingdom of God. Instead, so what do these people want? Why do they worship? These people... Worship like they mean it, don't they? And I think they did mean it. These people are just like us. We say this all the time. People are no different. People are just people. You can read about them in the first century. They're just like you. It doesn't matter where people came from, who they are. They're just basically the same. When it gets down to what they need most, what they want most, what they fear most, their biggest temptations, their biggest failures, they're just the same. So these people want what all people want and what all people need. They need a prophet. They need a priest. They need a king. They need a savior. That's who they're looking at, right? He's on a donkey, but that's who they've got here. They, they recognize what they're looking at. They need a prophet. You, do you need a prophet? You do. You need, you need a voice of truth. The world's confusing. There's only like six million messages coming at you every day. From all different sides. How do I discern all that? How do I wade through all the nonsense? I need somewhere to stand. I need something solid. I need a sure word. I need a prophet. That's what you have. Jesus is the culmination of all the prophets. The ultimately perfectly wise, all-knowing person. When he says it, you can count on it's true. He spoke not as the others did. He spoke as one having authority. You can stand on this certain 
word. What was that uh, phrase earlier about the king? Um, a, a plentitude. Was that what it said? A plentitude of righteousness or something? What was that we read earlier? What would it say? A plenteous. That's right. Was it righteousness or? I can't. Plenteous. I thought. By the way, that's a good band name for your Christian band. Plenteous. A prophet, he speaks, he knows. You don't have to be confused. Oh, so many voices. Who do I believe? All these opinions. You better, you better stay near to the voice, the one true singular voice. Prophet, capital P, he knows. And, and I don't care who goes against it. The most powerful, coolest, richest, best. God help us. Even a, even a great, big time, important preacher. Paul said, even if I come back here in Galatians or an angel shows up and tells you something else, don't believe him. Let him be accursed. You follow the prophet. People need a prophet. You need a prophet. You need a word. And people need a priest. People need a priest. Because you're not, you're not born naturally in the right standing with God. How am I going to get there? People have deep guilt. People are walking around all around us just racked with guilt. They don't know what to do with it. They just feel bad. And, and, and guilt, we carry it around like a stone behind us. We know all the stuff we've done wrong, could have done, could have done better, mistakes we've made. So people, people don't know, how do I handle this? And it comes out in different ways. So we act out in different ways trying to, trying to get ourselves clean, trying to wash it off, right? Like Lady Macbeth. Ah, can't, can't get it off. Feel guilty. So we try all kinds of tricks and religious tricks. And then we use it against each other because we're like that. We'll, turn, we'll use it against each other. There's an entire society of people just trying to guilt each other. It's almost like a competition. We're sort of engaged often in the politics of guilt. Oh, how, you're guilty. No, you're guilty. You're more guilty. You're more guilty. Until we just we buried each other under just how bad. Now, you're worse than me. Our standard is not where it ought to be. So that we, we're looking for a priest. Some people say, well, you're not a Roman Catholic, are you? You don't believe in them. No, no, we don't. No, we don't come in here and confess to an official, a priest who goes into a temple somewhere. Jesus, when he says it is finished, you remember what happened in the temple, right? Yeah. That was, there was, that was the, no Jew would have mistaken what that symbolized and what that meant. We now have a high priest. As Hebrews tells us, we have a true high priest. He won't get replaced because he won't die. He doesn't have to be replaced. And he doesn't keep doing the work. He doesn't have to sacrifice himself again and again and again. He finished that work and he sat down. See, his work is done. One sacrifice, once for all. He ever lives to make intercession for us. We have a high priest forever, it says. A priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, not in, not in the standard order, in a different order. That mystery man, you know, king of righteousness, king of peace. So we have a priest and you need a priest. Let's not ever think that we don't need a priest anymore. We definitely need a priest. I need I need I need a, a propitiation for my sin. There's your theological word for the day. Use that in the next spelling bee. Sunday school spelling bee. You need atonement for sin. So you need a priest, all right, but not just any priest will do. We have a high priest. 
That's why, that's why they're saying Hosanna. They know this man can make me right with God and I desperately need it. And we need a king. We belong to two, we belong to two different political systems, you know. Whichever, wherever you live on earth, you're, you're stuck with whatever one you got in the flesh. But if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, you got a second citizenship. And it's the more important one. We belong to a kingdom. You know, around the world, sometimes kings don't always have the best reputations, right? Because when you give someone the power of a king, hmm, there's just this terrible temptation. Sinners that we are to take the powerful scepter and to abuse it. But a righteous king, I can follow a right. I want to be a part. It's like someone has said before, you know, if we were if we weren't sinners, any any political arrangement would work. Anyone would work. You could have a king, have an emperor, it didn't matter if he were perfect. You see, Jesus is the perfect king. And so we willingly, we want to be part of that kingdom. I want to be a citizen there. How many times did Jesus talk about the kingdom? Well, according to people who studied it, I don't. I won't take credit. I didn't go up and count. I didn't. I didn't count it. But it's rough if you count kingdom of God and if you throw in kingdom of heaven references. It's like almost a hundred. It's like just shy of a hundred. Over and over, all through, he's talking about the kingdom. The kingdom. So he's a king. That's what the Messiah was supposed to be—a king. The people, the people liked a king because he's going to rule. That's power. But. You know, the, the disciples are thinking, rule over the Sanhedrin, rule over the class of the Pharisees, rule over even the Romans. But they're not thinking big enough. Because this king is going to rule over sin, Satan, evil, and death. Amen. Now that's rule. Amen. And they need a savior, as we said earlier. Plent- they need, it needed to be plenteous. His blood covers a multitude of sins. Aren't you glad? Because no offense to any of you, but you got a multitude. I don't have to know you personally. I just know it. Because I know, because I just, you know, that's just basic anthropology 101. I, I know a little bit about people. And the one thing I know for sure is we're all just a bunch of sinners. So we need, we, I, I don't, you know, it's like, it's like those plans where you get so many hours, uh, you get so many hours on your on your uh, on your text plan or your or your Wi-Fi or your uh, your data plan. No, you better get unlimited, friend. You you don't want to be on the uh, hundred sins plan, the thousand sins plan. You might want to hedge your bets on that one. Just go with unlimited. You're going to need a multitude covered. He is able to save to the uttermost, which means that the guy who's done it all bad and all wrong. I mean, from first to last, because we rank sinners. And that's what we do. So you, you'll walk out of this building and you, as a, as a righteousness pursuing, church-going person, you will be perceived by the outside world as better than most. Where you go, they know you. They know you go to church. They know that you're a worshiper of God. They will think, well, there she is. Oh, what's her name? And you know, she's just so good. She goes to church every week. Doesn't she? Because that's how they will perceive you. On the hierarchy of things, you're good Maybe even in your family tree, maybe they're all just all messed up every which way. And they look at you and you're the saint, but you know who you really are. But guess what? It's the salvation plan is is good for them. 
Even my old uncle so-and-so, I mean, he is the worst sinner you ever met. Yeah, even uncle so-and-so. You can't out-sin him. So the people needed that. They knew they needed that. And in the end, in the end, in the end this guy on a donkey, this virtual nobody, this peasant-born person, will he, will he get there? Will he be a great king? Will he actually? I mean, it doesn't look like it because he's about to be accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's about to get shouted down by the crowd. He's about to get, it's about to be a kangaroo court. And he's going to be, he's going to be unjustly tried and killed in the most brutal kind of execution that people can devise. That doesn't look like a victory to me from the outside, does it? It looks like a big field. That's why the disciples scattered. That's why it wrecked Peter's mind so much that he was running around going, oh, I, don't, I never heard of him. The bold Peter. Him? I don't know him. Huh? Oh, that's a different guy. You got me confused. Even that, that's, how, that's, how, that's how much that messed his head up. He just couldn't believe it. And yet, will he be victorious in the end? Yes. Well, you know, come. we'll be around next Sunday to cover that part. But you know, really, you look across history, and this Jesus, this, this peasant, his name is echoed across the world. How about any of those other leaders? Anybody know their name anymore? Anybody worshiping them? Great historian Philip Schaff of the early 20th century, he said, Jesus of Nazareth, without money, without arms, conquered more millions than Alexander, Caesar, Mohammed, or Napoleon. Without writing a single line, he has set more pens in motion, furnished more themes for more sermons, orations, discussions, works of art, learned volumes, and sweet songs of praise than the whole army of great men of ancient and modern times. What those people needed was something that it didn't matter what kind of how great a stallion he rode in on, what kind of clothes adorned him. There's, there's a deeper need of people. You can achieve all of those things, and it comes up empty. There's something to be said about the fact that the important guys in the city couldn't recognize this, and the common people could. The common people could. Who writes the greatest hymns? Who writes the greatest hymns? Overlords and rich guys? Or people in bondage? People who, people who recognize and people who know. Sometimes people late in life come to see it. There's a great... Uh, there's a great passage by this man who was, who was one of those people. There's a great celebrated journalist in Britain back in a different era named Malcolm Muggeridge. Sort of, he's sort of a celebrity himself. Super intellectual writer, covered all the things around the world. Late in life, though, he came to see how meaningless it was. He became a Christian. And here's what he wrote, looking back on it. He said, I may, I suppose... Regard myself as a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can easily earn enough to gain admission into the higher slopes of the internal revenue. That's success. And furnished with those things, if I care to, I can partake in trendy diversions. That's pleasure. And it might happen that once in a while something I wrote can help me to persuade myself that it represented an impact, that I made a difference, and that's fulfillment. And that's all good. Yet I say to you, 
and beg you to believe me. Multiply these triumphs by a million. Add them all together. They are nothing. Less than nothing. Measured against one draft of that living water that Christ offers. That's what these people are shouting about. That's why they know that this one who comes, he's the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.